Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 79, with the title Humanising Arabs and Muslims. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Evelyn Al-Sultani. Evelyn describes herself as a professor, author, and leading expert on the history of representations of Arabs, Muslims in the US media. When I asked Evelyn to describe her superpower, she said that she has a warm personality and she makes others feel included. Hello, Evelyn. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joanne. Thanks so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. So, Evelyn, we were chatting in the green room before we got live. The title, Humanizing Arabs and Muslims. Tell me more about that. So, Joanne, when you asked me what my superpower was, I was stumped on that question. And I reached out to two friends and one of them said, your superpower is humanizing Arabs and Muslims. And the unfortunate part of this equation is that humanizing is necessary. Because Arabs and Muslims have been dehumanized for so long in media representations, in government policies, in politician speeches. Many people think it started around 9-11. It intensified after 9-11, but it's been um, part, at least in the U.S., it's been part of U.S. media representations for over 100 years. And so part of my mission is to both humanize Arabs and Muslims, but also to study the processes of dehumanization. How does that even happen? And it happens to so many different communities in different ways. So in my case, I'm, I have been studying Arabs and Muslims for over 20 years. Have they been represented in the media? Have they been dehumanized? What are processes through which they can be included? What are efforts out there that seek to create more diverse and inclusive possibilities for Arabs and Muslims? So you've used the word dehumanize a couple of times. And we look at examples throughout history. As soon as we remove the humanity, as soon as we remove someone's identity like that, we, we treat them as subhuman, not human, i.e. dehumanize. Then it gives us permission to treat people without, without any respect. And that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? That's exactly what we're talking about. When we dehumanize people, it allows us to justify not giving those people rights, uh, not treating them with respect and dignity. In the case of Arabs and Muslims, it includes justifying going to war in Muslim-majority countries. After 9-11, that included Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, Iraq actually had nothing to do with 9-11, but it led to over 150,000 Iraqi civilians being killed. So I often think what made that possible for the United States to go to war with a country 
on the guise of 9-11 when there was no connection to that and to lead to such devastating outcomes that have such tremendous impact on human life. So dehumanization is necessary. And it's not to say that the whole American public was in favor of it. It was a very contentious moment. Some were in favor, some weren't. But dehumanizing is necessary to construct an enemy or to construct groups of people as not worthy of the same rights as the dominant group. I suppose it's the same logic as when we think about animal welfare, because they're not humans, we have permission to eat them, to kill them, to not care about them. And but dehumanisation is is effectively treating people as animals or or not not having the same sentient rights. I run uh, unconscious bias privileged workshops. I hate the word unconscious bias. It doesn't doesn't work for me, but that's what people tend to refer it to it as. And one of the examples I use is I ask people to come up with words and phrases that you hear in the media, in the ether, that you're kind of pervasive about different people. And one of the questions I asked to come up with words associated with Muslims. And not one of them said, ever, has ever come back and said, the person next door, not my friend. They always create this picture of someone firing a semi-automatic machine gun in the air, firing bullets, chanting, wearing um, a turban or a hat, living in the desert in a tent. These are the words they come out with. Not one, t- not once has someone said the person next door or uh, anybody you know, you know, or my friend in the in the in the room here. So that's what's that we've been bombarded with that stuff all the time, aren't we? We have been bombarded. Uh, there is um, a book by the late scholar Jack Shaheen about representations of Arabs in the history of Hollywood and Arabs and Muslim identities have been co-produced as one and the same. And right now we're finally in the process of disentangling and trying to explain to the public that Muslims, that is a religious identity and that it is a very diverse group of people and approximately 15 or 20% of Muslims are actually Arab, but we have this Arab Middle Eastern Muslim construction uh, that has come out of a history of filmmaking. So Jackson, he wrote a book called Real Bad Arabs, How Hollywood Vilifies a People. And he looked at a hundred years of filmmaking starting in the early 1900s. He looked at almost a thousand movies and he said out of the thousand movies that represent Arabs, 52 are even handed and 12 are positive. So by the time we get to 9-11, we've been consuming Hollywood movies that have been demonizing Arabs for a very, very long time. And in terms of the exercise that you do in your trainings, Arab, Muslim, Middle Eastern, this identity category has been constructed as a threat to national security. They're un-American. They are a threat to us. They're fanatics. They're anti-Semitic. They're, they oppress their women. So we have this um, picture of who Muslims are. There are almost 2 billion Muslims in the world. And according to this logic, 2 billion Muslims means that 25% of the world population is Muslim. So that means that 25% of the world's population would fall under this kind of descriptor. And some uh, studies of the news, news reporting, have shown uh, there was one study about the New York Times and how Muslims were reported in the New York Times in the 90s and in the early 2000s that showed that whenever there was a terrorist attack committed by a Muslim, 
that it was described in a way in which all Muslims bear collective responsibility. So we are all responsible for an individual's action. Um, there's another study that showed the more media that we consume that show Muslims enacting violence, the more likely we are to support uh, war in Muslim-majority countries and policies that restrict Muslim civil liberties. So a lot of my work has been on the media uh, to try to understand how this uh, institution that's so powerful, even though it's not making policies, can be so influential in terms of, mm-hmm. well, what do we see about Muslims in the media? What do we know about them? What do, and if we have this Arab-Muslim-Middle Eastern conflation, what do we know about the Middle East? What are the stories we're getting? And a lot of the stories are about, have been historically, about terrorism, about rich oil sheiks who are going to threaten the economy, about oppressed veiled women. And uh, so we have a very uh, limited number of stories that we have been consuming repeatedly for a very long time. And it's, I'm I'm not intending to take the spotlight off of Muslims and Arabs here, but we look at the, the media it, it it wants to create good and bad, doesn't it? That's what sells, clicks, polarisation. Since the early movies, we've had a good person and a bad person having a fight. Yes. And you look at early, early, okay, some of it was Charlie Chaplin, some of that was kind of fairly sort of innocence, but it quickly moved on to Westerns, cowboys and Indians. White is good, native indigenous uh, American people, bad. Savages, decency all those sort of then that played out in the allies and nazis the kind of tommies and jerry's is it east and west cold war you know soviets versus america we had these we had good and bad didn't we and 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 muslims and arabs are fitting into that same narrative good and bad we white is good everybody else is bad dehumanized as you say savages painted painted in a bad light and that's not just in the u.s it's, it's across the certainly the english-speaking western world and probably throughout europe as well yes the good guy and the bad guy hmm. it is a very common theme what's interesting recently is that hollywood has started creating more complex portrayals and so after 9-11 when it came to Arabs and Muslims, we start seeing terrorist storylines that instead of this one-dimensional terrorist bad guy where, you know, I think about movies like uh, True Lies that Arnold Schwarzenegger was in in the 1990s or um, The Siege with Denzel Washington that, that portray Arab Muslims as terrorists. When the bad guy dies, you celebrate in the audience. You're applauding. It's, it's a good thing. Yeah, get, get the bad guy. Get the bad Arab. Uh, but more recently, writers and producers have been trying to create more complicated characters. So we have Arab Muslim characters who are terrorists who are given an elaborate backstory as if it's supposed to compensate for this long history. So one example that comes to my mind is Jack Ryan on Amazon Prime. During season one, there was an Arab Muslim back, bad guy. And we learned that when he was a child in an Arab country, I think it was in Syria, that the U.S. um, sent drone strikes and killed his family. So he grew up without his family. That did not make him a terrorist. He moved to France 
And he was very educated and smart, and he couldn't get a job because of anti-Arab and anti-Muslim racism. And that didn't turn him into a terrorist. But then he ended up going to jail. And while he was in jail, he converted to Islam and became... Actually, he was Muslim, but he reconnected to his Muslim identity in a whole new way. Radicalized, what we call it. Exactly. He became radicalized. So we have these complicated backstories. And then the question is, is this helping? Okay, it's better than the one dimensional. You're getting some kind of backstory, but you're still having a story about Arabs and Muslims as terrorists. And the other development after 9-11 was the patriotic Arab or Muslim American which would be a character who works for the CIA or the FBI, who's helping the United States fight against terrorism. And in this Jack Ryan episode, there is a, a black Muslim CIA agent uh, who's, you know, he's part of the CIA team and he is there to counteract the Muslim terrorists to show that there are patriotic ones too. And in my research, what I found is that even though it seems positive and yes, it's better that it's still a very limited imagining of who Muslims can be. So you can be good in the context of terrorism if you are pro-U.S. policies, if you work for government agencies. But then what if you're just a person? Yeah. I, I, there's something in the news the other week about there were a number of people executed in Saudi in one day or something. And there was a big story. but. It's not, it's, it's not the same story when the U.S. are executing people in prisons day in, day out. Um, that's kind of well, that's all right. They're bad people. It's like so. It's again. It's, it's that. It's that dual standard. That dual narrative, isn't it? It really is. I think that's a a great example that we have the death penalty in the U.S., but it's not headline news around the world. Look at these barbaric Americans killing people. Yeah. But in other countries that practice the death penalty, it's an, it's a symbol. It symbolizes how barbaric they are, how undemocratic they are. And Guantanamo uh, Bay yes. was a travesty. It, it's such a travesty. It had to be offshored into a different yes. country to make it palatable, exactly. um, to protect the world well, the, from terrorists. And yet uh, my understanding is that many, many, many people who are out there have been released after many years with, with no evidence, no charge, no, no, no trial, no nothing, uh, just for maybe being Arab or Muslim in the wrong place. Yes, exactly. Held for years, lives destroyed, no charges. And then the question is, what makes that possible? How is it possible? So it's all of this messaging, all of the dehumanization, because the idea is, well, they're Muslim men, so if they're not guilty of terrorism, they must be guilty of something else, whether it's, you know, oppressing women or being anti-American or anti-Semitic. They must be guilty of something, even if it's not mm. what they are purportedly being held for. I was reading something the other day. I think it was um, – no, it was on the radio. It was George Takai um, of Star Trek fame, um, Sulu and Star Trek. He was talking about how he was – a young, uh, young American at the time of Pearl Harbor and his entire communities around him were rounded up because they had Japanese descent. And they, again, they were dehumanized. So they were, they were shipped off to concentration camps effectively within the US yes. and just purely because they had Japanese heritage yes. and the white people got scared. It's yes. very they similar kind of rounding up, up, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. 
after 9-11, many people said, we're at this new moment. We're not rounding up all Arabs and Muslims like we did with Japanese Americans. We're enlightened. We've changed. But it seemed that the technology had changed. You could surveil people more yeah. easily. And then there were instances like the Guantanamo Bay one that you mentioned where people were picked up and locked up indefinitely for years and years. Um, so it wasn't everybody in the way that it was for Japanese Americans during World War II. But uh, the idea that we had evolved and we weren't doing that anymore because we were a better country. Uh, I, I'm not buying that. With Abu Ghraib prison and the USA Patriot Act and these wars that have killed countless numbers of people, so much death, so much destruction, uh, but a lot of it was made possible through some quote unquote positive images of Arabs and Muslims. There were a lot of TV shows after 9-11 that had this feeling of remorse. We're so sorry that we have to discriminate. We're against racial profiling, but given the emergency we're in, given the national security crisis, we don't want to racially profile, but we have to. So there were narratives like we are against torture. We're the United States. We're against torture. But because of the state of national security that we're in, we have no choice. So there was a particular kind of logic that was saying, that's not us, but we have no choice. We're going to enact um, racist, uh, violent policies because it has to be justified under the emergency situation that we're in. Mm. So. A couple, well, a couple of years ago, so it was 2020, we had the murder of George Floyd and the big Black Lives Matter movement. Um, lots of outcry, lots of the, a public a public trial of the, of, the, of the police officer that murdered him. Lots of shock horror shows that it's still ingrained racism in much of the US in, in, and in many states. It hasn't changed much since the 50s or 40s. Has the Muslim Arab community benefited at all from this, or is it, or is it, it's Black Lives Matter, but not Brown Lives? I do think Muslims have benefited. So, um, I've written a book called "Broken: The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion," that looks at how Muslims have come to be included in diversity politics. And uh, one of the ways that it has become possible is through a recognition of Islamophobia as a problem. So even though Islamophobia is old, very old, it, so in the UK, apparently it was recognized in the late 1990s because the Runnymede Trust wrote a report on Islamophobia. And then this idea of Islamophobia became part of the, the lexicon in the UK, from my understanding. In the US, we didn't start using Islamophobia until around 2010. And uh, it's around that time that diversity, equity, inclusion language is on the rise. George Floyd from a few years ago, um, Oscar So White controversy. And I think Donald Trump's presidency led to a reaction from people that was unprecedented, that people saw. It seems to me that people don't act unless discrimination is explicit and in your face. So even though we know that we are in a society that has been constructed to privilege white, male, cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied, neurotypical, etc., 
Uh, we only act when we see something horrific happen. And so I think I, I've been thinking about George Floyd, like George Floyd led to some changes. Like finally, I don't have to see Aunt Jemima in the grocery store, or Uncle Ben. Uh, finally, the Washington Redskins changed their name, even though it was decades of people protesting it. So I've had moments like, why now? What change? We've seen many Black people be killed on television, recorded, but it was this that led to unprecedented response and change. And I think it's because of Donald Trump, that he represented this explicit, in-your-face discrimination and it led people to to want to do something about it. So Muslims have benefited from a whirlwind of different events coming together, from recognizing Islamophobia to George Floyd to Donald Trump saying Muslim ban, uh, Oscar so white, the rise of diversity, which I see also as the fall of affirmative action and diversity, inclusion, equity, inclusion coming to replace that. And I think diversity, equity, inclusion on the one hand allows for groups who are not part of affirmative action to be included, whether it's Muslim, LGBTQ, people who are disabled. So it, it widens uh, the possibilities of inclusion. Uh, but at the same time, it could also be further divorced from a social justice or restorative justice objective. Uh, so a lot of what I've been thinking about is... Mm. What are the limits and possibilities of the diversity work that we are doing today? I mean, I, I, I agree that you know, tr Trump certainly catalyzed not well not only his supporters but also the, his anti-supporters. You know, the people who are seeing what's going on. But that 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 era of Trump spread across Europe. It spread into the UK. We ended up with our government being a, a bit more. Well, a lot more right wing. We've seen that rise of that right wing, um, anti wokeness all the way across Europe and other parts of the country, Brazil and, and lots of other countries. It's rising up. Trumpism hasn't gone away, has it? It's still there. I mean, Biden didn't win a landslide. He, he won up. He, he was fighting to the last couple of states and the, the, was it the Florida governor? Is it DeSantos? Or, he, he's, he, he's talking about. Um, banning EDI training in all government institutions, defunding it basically yes. to try and stamp it out. Right. Um, to was it um, critical race theory is what he calls it, isn't it? Sort of trying yes. to stamp out critical race theory, ban the word intersectionality, this kind of phraseology. So the world's not safe yet, is it? it no. We haven't woken up and gone, phew, we've escaped. We're still right in it. Yeah, we we are we are not. No, we are not safe. I do think we're in a different moment than we have ever been in terms of inclusion. And I think that's been made possible through these moments of crisis where people respond. In my book, I call it crisis diversity, where there's an event, let's say Muslim ban. And again, what's interesting to me is we had the USA Patriot Act. We had special registration, war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay prison. But Muslim ban led to an unprecedented response. It's not to say that people didn't react, respond, protest, those other things, but it was in a level that I, I've never witnessed before. And I do think it was because of Donald Trump, but it led to you know, corporations issuing statements, uh, universities, including Muslims and diversity plans, all of us who do work. And I actually wanted to ask you about this around crisis diversity, that something happens. And then those of us who do work in the area were called upon 
we have to give lectures and we're happy to do it, but it's exhausting. All of a sudden there's interest in this thing that we've been working on for a very long time. The crisis passes and then things get quiet. And then uh, you, the next crisis comes along and then your phone's ringing off the hook again. And I was mm. wondering if you experienced that as well, if there's like an event. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It, it's, you know, there's, there's a term that we would often use in the DNI space around performative. Yes. So we're, we're, we're react, as you say, this crisis diversity, this, this reaction, the Black Lives Matter. We had, uh, the rape, murder and kidnapping and rape, murder and kidnap of a, of a young woman in this country by a police officer. So we had a lot of, uh, pushback. It was kind of a Me Too violence against women and girls. We did a lot of talking about this. We raised the issues. We started to talk about it. Trans rights, LGBT rights. Again, classic examples. Everyone loves to paint, change their logo once a year. They, they love to yes. say what they're doing. They're a Black History Month for US. It's in October for us. No, it's, you're, you're, it's Black History Month now in February for you. Right now. October for us. This is our LGBT History Month now. So, you know, everyone wants to do the right thing and everyone needs to latch on to hashtags to, to do stuff. Um, but how do we make it sticky? How do we make it a habit and, and embedded and, there seems to be a lack of, well, I think the, tr- the trouble sometimes is we end up in an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. We're corralled as a minority characteristic, a marginalised group or voiceless group, whatever it may be. And we're, we're kind of, we're fed this sort of kind of, yeah, yeah, there it's going to go away. It's going to be nice. We're going to sort stuff out. Then they just shut the door on us and they're going on doing their own thing. And it's kind of, we're left there talking amongst each other, thinking, yes, we're making change. But the only people that are actually hearing that is our own community. We're not getting, we're not getting the white people in the room, we're not getting the men in the room, we're not getting the able-bodied. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier about the neurotypical. I think, hang on a minute. I'm sure some of the people who are having these troubles are not neurotypical. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole spectrum of neurodiversity going on in some people here, but we've, we've got to get the people who can bring change into the room. That's the politicians. Yes. That's the people in power. That's the allies we've got to get in there, not just have conversations with our communities because the trans community can go and have a conversation. That, the queer community can, the Muslim community mm-hmm. can, yes, black community. Yes. But unless it breaks out into the mainstream, we're just talking to ourselves. I agree. This is one of my uh, big concerns around crisis diversity, that they are opportunities. Because, yeah. you know, during this period after 9-11 that I described where we had this sorrowful messaging, people were under the impression that we were in a quote-unquote post-race era. We were on the cusp of electing a black man to be president, and finally we did. And so I, I don't think that George Floyd would have been possible under Obama or even Biden, because it gives certain people a sense of security and peacefulness. And it did take someone like Trump to galvanize people mm. into unprecedented action. But I do think that this cycle of we see the problem because there's a crisis and, and you know, the crisis is a historical one. Mm. It's a momentary crisis just clues us in and reminds us that it's there. So in terms of long-term solution, I mean, I'm not saying anything new here, but we need to look at the root causes. And a lot of the root causes are around centuries of creating a society with this normative identity where whoever's not in that normative identity is on the margins Meant to feel other, bad. Other yeah, over other. the hill. You're, you're exactly. from the over the hill. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You're, you're a danger. Yeah. Is that that bias, that protectionism we have? Anyone who's different to us is, is a threat. Exactly. And uh, I mean, 
certainly the British and half the Europeans before America was even uh, thought about um, were going to the Holy Land and the Holy Wars, and there were they weren't well, they were probably half French, half German, Mongols, Saxons um, at the time, not British as such. They were just the Mongols of, of Europe going to the Holy Land to sort of to fight for Christianity and the righteous, and that, that was setting the the Muslims and Arabs as heathens, wasn't it, at that time there? And that's Richard the Lionheart, was that 1400 and something, 1300 and something? It's been going back way before then, hasn't yes. it? That, that kind of the, the Moors and the that kind of the um, the, the black people who are you know, Muslim or, or from that part of Africa uh, murdered Christ or something, or, you know, got, got the blame for that. It's, it's kind of, that's what we're building on. And this is centuries and centuries. Right. Even even almost a thousand years of this going on. Exactly, very very long history, and so mm. I think about Hollywood and Hollywood responded to the Muslim ban and created Muslim characters outside of the context of terrorism. Many, and it was it's been amazing to see some are better than others, but there was a concerted effort, and we finally have characters in uh, TV shows. There's a show called Nine One One Lone Star. And there's a female firefighter. She wears a hijab. She's, you know, a firefighter, part of the team. Amazing mm. character. Um, Orange is the New Black uh, included a prison inmate, Alison oh, Abdullah. Yeah. Loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a black Muslim prison we inmate. We had trans characters. We had brown yes. characters. We had lesbian characters. We had straight characters, uh, old characters, young characters. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. We had a whole whole heap of different characters in that. I thought it was a, an amazing series. I think in Hollywood, we are at a diversifying moment. And they're mm-hmm. also noticing with Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians that you can even make money doing that. Yeah. Being more inclusive and diverse. They're so great I think films. we're interesting. Yes. Welcome to Wakanda. And, uh, yes. And Crazy Rich Asians. I watched that on telly the other night. That's a fantastic yeah. film as well. Yeah. There's a Canadian uh, TV show called Sort of about a Pakistani Muslim transgender person in Canada. Mm. It's an amazing, it's like, it's about a person. Uh, we are lady parts out of the UK. It's my favorite. About mm. five Muslim women joining a punk rock band. So we're seeing uh, some uh, productions that are actually written by Muslims and makes all the difference when you actually have people of the identity telling their own stories. Uh, so I think we're at an important opening point. It's just hard to, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know where it's going, but I feel nervous about our tendency to be open to change or enact change only when there's an explicit and evident crisis. Are white men under threat? They think they are. Yeah, they do, don't they? Mm-hmm. If we look at uh, the birth rates are going down uh, in most most of the world, that can be put down to empowerment of women, um, women not wanting to be a, a person's property or, or just a baby machine. They want to have, to have families later. Um we see the rise of something called the incel movement. I don't know if you have that in the in the US. This is the uh, enforced celibacy. It's men believing that women are the problem, which is why they're not having sex, having babies. Women are denying them access to their rights uh, but to have sex whenever they want it. We also see people talking about, you know, people use the phrase global majority. So white people are globally in a minority compared with others. We see Islam being one of the fastest growing religions in the world. Okay, we've got China, we've got we've got India with mm-hmm. massive populations. Yeah. The, most of the world isn't white. And right. are people feeling threatened? So the men are feeling threatened yes. by the rise of female empowerment 
rise of LGBT, so straight men are getting even more squeezed. And then white men are thinking, hang on a minute, brown, black, brown people of color are getting all this assistance, all this motion. What about me? You know, yes. what about my lives matter? You know, yeah. is that what we're saying? We're seeing this yeah. pushback. I think that, that the Trump. way you just, yeah. yeah, the way you described it, it just makes me think that it's a, more about power than identity, right? Because diversity, equity, and inclusion, yes, we're trying to right historical wrongs and trying to include people who have been marginalized, but it doesn't mean that white people aren't included. White people have always been included. They will continue to be included. But it's about power and anxiety around losing being the normative. I guess if you're used to that for so long, how do you give it up? It's a great quote, and I don't know who said it, but it's something like along the lines of, when you're used to so when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Yes. So what is almost this feeling yes. that I'm giving something up to allow you in. Yes. I, I when I when I apply for a job and there are more people who aren't like me, they're only there to make up the numbers and I should be getting the job. But I now have to share it with a black person or a woman or a gay person. Whereas normally white white straight men used to get these jobs and now you're denying me. Make yes. it harder for me. That's kind of the perception sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, I love that quote. It's a great quote, very telling. It says a lot about what white privilege is. You don't see that. You don't see it. You you know, you're, you're so it's so normalized that you don't see it. But the, the pushback is often that they've had a tough life as well. You know that you know, some as many white people who live in trailer parks, who have um, low income, no income, unemployable for whatever reason. So they think, hang on a minute, what about me? I've, I've got nothing as well. I, I'm not privileged. But there's a, there's a lack of concept between, because their lack of, their lack of privilege has got nothing to do with their skin color. Their lack of privilege is for other socioeconomic reasons. Yes. Whereas yes. what we're talking about here is because of your skin color, because of your faith, which is something you, you're born into. Yes. And equality doesn't mean that we're out to marginalize white people and, or saying that all white people have great lives just because they're white. We all, we're human. We all struggle. We all struggle with something. We've all mm-hmm. got, we've all got something in our past, something in our current, something in our future. That means we're going to have, a, we're going to struggle. It doesn't yes. mean to say we don't have our, we still have our base privilege that we fall back on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't get through life without struggle. It's just not, it's not life. So we are where we are. It's not, it's, it's not fair. It's not right. As you say the dehumanization, as you say, it's, it's, there's a level of awareness and improvement post, uh, George Floyd, post COVID. But I, as I often say on, on this infinite journey, we may have come a long way, but there's a still a long way to go. Yeah, I agree. Right now, in terms of humanizing Muslims, uh, there are five shows that come to mind, two of them that I just mentioned. We are Lady Parts and Sort Of. We have Rami on Hulu, Mo on Netflix, and Ms. Marvel, which is about a oh, Pakistani yeah, Muslim that. Yeah, I saw that hero. Disney Plus, yeah. Yes, Disney yeah. Plus. And those shows, for me, show the way. And I think for many other communities, there are a handful of shows that are like, finally, we see ourselves represented in some way, and it's so important. But as you mentioned, there is a very powerful opposition out there. So it's not a smooth sailing situation. I feel like those who are on the left who care about diversity tend to respond to crisis and then let the ball drop. 
And then we have those on the right, like DeSantis, who are trying to prevent it. And what I find particularly interesting is that diversity is on the rise because people hate affirmative action in the United States. It's on the decline, but it was created in the 1960s as acknowledgement. Yes, we've had policies for centuries that have privileged white people. So we're going to institute affirmative action to try to get more marginalized groups, particularly Black and Native American, Latino and Asian, have more opportunities. From the very beginning, there was opposition. And right now it's on the decline. And I think people who care about diversity have embraced diversity. And uh, there's a scholar in England called Sarah Ahmed who says that diversity is a feel-good solution. Affirmative action doesn't sound good. People don't like it. But diversity, it feels good. We're diverse. We're inclusive. We like it. Everyone's included. But what I've been noticing is that in the process of diversity, even though more groups can be included who should be included, that there is an easy watering down that takes place to make it palatable. So, you know, you've heard this many times, diversity is good for education, which great, it is. Diversity is good for business. Okay, that's great too. But, and we're doing that to say to people, even if you don't like it, you should like it because you might profit or it might enhance your education. It might make you more profitable in the mar- in the global marketplace. But when we start doing that, the restorative justice piece falls out of the conversation. And so are we doing diversity to make money? Are we doing diversity uh, to feel good? Or are we doing it to actually acknowledge a history that's been damaging, exclusive, oppressive to many different groups of people? And is, is that our project or is our, our project to be palatable and sell diversity? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I always come from the start that there are different sorts of people in this world that that are that resonate with different messages, and that's just that's the diversity of people's yes, thinking. And that's true. I, I always hark back to I think it's Greek philosophy or Aristotle, the Lagos ethos and pathos, the the logic, the emotion, and the compliance. If you like, so we've got to comply with the law. We've got laws. We've got to treat people fairly because the law says so. And there's a business case. There's a logic. There's sort of like, it makes great sense to do this because it's, but then you've got the human factor. This is the right thing to do. I want to be treated right. You want to be treated, we want to be treated fairly. We be, hopefully most of us are born and work as good people. We are inherently good people. We don't wake up to be nasty specifically. So we want to be treated right. We really inherently want to treat others right. But what happens is we don't for whatever reason. We have a bad, bad hair day. We kick the cat. We get cut up at the light. Suddenly our personality changes. But I always maintain that if we can get the human side right, get the inclusion right, get the culture right, make the world of work a better place for everybody where people can thrive. Out of that comes the business case. Out of that comes the compliance rather than the compliance and the business case being the lead. They're fantastic byproducts of just being decent human beings. Those things happen. You represent your customers. You represent society. You represent each other. People come to work high, high levels of psychological safety. All of that happens. And then your bottom line will go up because you're a decent company employing with decent culture. So I would sort of say, well, yeah, let's look at those three pillars, but recognize that the human factor has to be the lead. Everything else happens because of that. Yeah. 
I like what you said about diversity of thinking. So in a sense, whatever it takes to, to reach you. And mm-hmm. what's interesting is that even with the diverse pitches to get people on board, that even with all of that, there is still fierce opposition. Even though diversity is more palatable, there is still fierce opposition. Well, it's worked. Monocultures work for centuries. It's mm-hmm. like white people in charge. It was always good. Now we've got brown and black and people of color involved. It's not, it's, it's not so good. You know, it's not so white. So yeah. it's almost like the status quo seems to, seems to work. You know, when men are in charge, it works. As soon as we get women involved, it gets all emotional and complicated. Isn't it? I mean, this is kind of what's happening. We're disrupting, yeah. we're disrupting people's thinking. It's like yeah. so much easier when we just kind of think about one thing, white men. Yeah. It's easy. Yeah. It was easier when we had these categories. And don't get me people. wrong. I'm not, I'm not demonizing men or white men because we need the, we need every voice in the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, the stereotype of that personal yes. privilege maybe we're using. And I, I don't want to be accused of, uh, of demonizing another group of people because I'm not. Yes. Me too. So it's a, we're, we're on this journey. So we, how do we, how do we persuade, well, good people, good organizations to make a difference? What can we do in terms of, you know, we, we talk specifically about the, the Arab Muslim community. What, what can we do? And thought, I think you quoted five TV programs. That's out of many thousand. They're great. That's not a great ratio, really, is it? No, it's, it's, kind it's of- really not. It's really not. I, you know, a lot of my work is on the media. So when I think about the impact of media in terms of how important it is for us to see ourselves, it matters so much. Mm. And for many years, I've heard executives in Hollywood say, oh, it's just entertainment. It's not policy, but it's so powerful. So one of the visions is that we just need more stories. So if we have this terrorism story that we've seen repeated over and over again, then in terms of humanizing Muslims, we need many, many stories of Muslims. There are 2 billion in the world. So five stories doesn't represent the whole Muslim community. And there's also a lot of pressure on those five film uh, TV makers. Oh, that doesn't represent me. That represents you. That doesn't represent me. So there's so much pressure to represent everyone. And it's not, not possible. So I, my vision is that we need so many stories that the terror story is one story, just one story. I mean, uh, when we see a white serial killer represented, we don't think white people need to take collective responsibility for this one person. It's one story. We have so many stories about white people as heroes, as villains, that it doesn't change how we, we understand that white people are a very diverse group of people, but with Muslims, Oh yeah terrorist fanatic it, it sticks and so regarding the world of the media i think stories are so powerful and mm. so we need more and more stories ideally written by when we tell stories about muslim arab people it sticks i think the issue is it's already in the person's mind. It's not, it's not like a new thought that's sticking. It's an old thought that's been reinforced and layered upon and layered upon. Yes. So that's the trouble. It's how do we get down that stack yeah. and take out that, 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 that original thought they've had about yes. the association, that, that heavy bias. Yeah. That's the challenge we've got is making, it well, is. we're probably not going to solve the problem with people over the age of 40 or 50. How do we stop? 
that occurring in our new generations, our, our yeah. children. That, that isn't that. I think that's where the hard work has to be done in our in our children emerging. Yes, teaching. I you know, agree with maybe, you. Maybe maybe the parent age group, because if you're a parent, you're bringing the education. So if you can get to the people now having children, twenty five to thirty year olds. If we can hit that generation, make sure that generation is educating their children, we can start changing the narrative in schools, in kindergartens. Is, yeah. is that is that something that's going to – we've got to write ourselves off and say, it's never going to be fixed in my generation. How do we fix it for, yeah. for next? Yes, because I agree the problem is not one TV show. It's the repetition. It's the confirmation. Oh, I, know, I already know this about these people, and that confirmed it, and that confirmed So it's the repetition mm. that's so dangerous. And I do think there is, you know, there is hope. There is generational hope. There is hope that the the next generation, someone was telling me recently that their kid is used to seeing diverse people on television mm-hmm. and that he's still in a situation where if he sees, you know, a non-white character on TV, he's like, come in the room and look at what's on television. And, the, and his kids are like, yeah, whatever. So then he was making the case that for his kids, diversity is, is normal. Yeah, it's hard for me. It's so yeah. foreign to me. So maybe with the next generation, we might, you know. They we'll talk about their gender. They talk about their sexuality. Yes. They they talk about each other's culture. They're just yes. friends. Gender pronouns is every day, you know, no big deal. So that's where I see the hope. And yeah. we all want change. You know, we. I think the last World Economic Forum was talking about, before we can get gender equality, they, talk about, they were talking about 2075, I think they was talking about. That's what, 60 years or something like that? You think, well, hang on a minute. Gender equality is going to take 60 or 70 years. Even if we half that, mm-hmm. it's going to take till 2040 something. You think, hang on a minute. I'm, I'm going to be 90 then. Right. Maybe I'm a bit older. But yeah, you think, yeah. Yeah. hang on a minute. I don't want to wait 20, 30, 40 years for a level of gender equality. And that's just gender. Yeah. We intersect that with uh, faith or religion or ethnicity. We intersect that with queer. We intersect that with disability. We intersect with, with anything else. And we know the experience of a, a, a black woman or a brown woman or a person of color is far less, um, than a, a white woman, for example, or a straight white woman. So that's the frustration is this, this, this cycle of change yeah. is glacially slow. Yeah. We've just got to hang in there, cling on, and, and keep the momentum, haven't we? I'm okay with it taking that long. And the re- yeah, the reason that I'm okay with it is that it seems, you know, if I think in the U.S., you know, in 1790, all men are created equal. It was a you know false claim, and it took two centuries later to even try to create policies that prevented discrimination or would punish for discrimination. Mm-hmm. So if it took 300, 400 years to establish and reconfirm whiteness in, as the center of everything. It might take 200 years to get somewhere else. It is hopeful now because I'm seeing change that I didn't expect. And as a professor who teaches the history of racism, 20 years ago, it was very niche to say intersectionality. You would use that in your classroom. And now you, you turn on the news and people are saying intersectionality. 15 years ago, you didn't see conversations about racism on the news every day. And now racism is part of the national conversation. I have like a VHS tape in my closet where I, one day I turned on MTV in the nineties and they were having a forum on race and I couldn't believe it. 
how they're talking about racism on TV. And I put the VHS in and recorded a, you know, what I could catch. And so now it's, this is part of our everyday conversation. So I, I think there's some, there's some hope in that despite all the opposition, despite the struggle, despite how difficult it is, despite how long it's going to take. Just, I, I feel like the one nice thing about getting older is being able to think about what was it like 20, 30 years ago? What is it like now? Oh, wow. I've, I've seen, I've seen gay marriage, you know, mm. I've seen transgender issues on, on the, you know, on the agenda. That was not, I'm sorry, 20 years ago. No. I mean, this thing, I mean, Rosa Parks, was that 50s, 1950s? Yes. Again, a lot's changed, but a lot hasn't changed. So yes. where we are now, George Floyd, in 50 years' time, yeah. we'll be probably where we were 50 years after Rosa Parks, maybe, or, right. or these these big shifts, the yeah. Martin Luther King, the all those kind of big moments, Nelson Mandela, South Africa, all this kind of big gravitational shift moments in the world. Yeah. I th- for me, I think it's about it's important that we have to create representation wherever we can. I agree. And embed diversity in, in every sphere. So that's whether you know in your in academia. So we're educating children with vault more models of all backgrounds. We're in we've got to get our politicians, we've got to get our news readers, our anchors, we've got to get our films, we've got to get our media representation, we've got to get people who drive the bus, people who open the doors, people who serve in the restaurants, not not just the low paid workers, but the high paid workers. We need we need to make sure we get representation in society because that's that's how we, we we will we will win by by believing in ourselves because when we don't see ourselves represented we have less faith. We have less trust. So we it's about building trust, isn't it? It is. I think that in most um institutional arenas people can do everything they can to make change. The one arena that I'm most concerned with that I think has so much influence is the policy level. And so when I think about how do you combat Islamophobia? Okay. More stories. That's great. More inclusion in the workplace and in universities. Okay. But you can do all that and you can still have policies that convey to you that Muslims are a threat to national security. So Part of me feels that there's a lot of great work being done, but as long as there's this uh, American government uh, machine that is conveying that message, it'll be very hard to actually really shift the problem. And we, we see you see exactly the same dehumanization playing out with trans people, mm-hmm. uh, black, brown people of color. We see it, we see women being described as less than a man, more emotional. How can they expect to have equality when they take 10 years out of their jobs to have children, et cetera, et cetera. It's all... Or women who can't have access to abortions anymore in the U S oh, yeah. Yeah, bath- right, yeah. transgender bathroom bills that, you know, make it an impossibility that yeah. these kinds of policies are incredibly damaging. Hmm. And th- and it's not just the U.S. Unfortunately, the U.S. has a a kind of a bleeding influence through the English speaking world. Uh, yeah, the the U.K. We're, we're transgender people are, are accused of, of everything these days. We even we even the root cause of uh, Scottish independence, and and uh, our, our politicians get elected on who's the most transphobic, which is no different to some of the the, the Trump type 
views where you're, 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 you're trying to mobilize your, your masses by appealing to each different person individually with a, with a, to hear their pain. And then they forget that they've got nothing in common. They just hear their pain and think they've been spoken to. So it's happening the world over. And I think it's, it's incumbent on all of us who are currently voiceless, unheard, marginalized, minoritized to mobilize our allies, the people who have the privilege and get them to hear our stories. I think that's what we can do mm-hmm. and keep pushing. I agree. Evelyn, it's been absolutely amazing. I, I, I could chat to you all day and you know, have another cup of decaf with you. Um, tell us more about how people can get in contact with you. I want to hear more about your book. Tell us more about your book and the work you do. Thank you, Joanne. So uh, I just published a book called Broken, The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion, which looks at the process through which Muslims have come to be included in Hollywood, corporations, universities, and law enforcement, the promises and pitfalls of diversity and inclusion. Uh, My book can be purchased at Amazon.com, NYU Press, which is the publisher, or wherever you buy your book. And uh, I'd also like to mention that uh, I co-created a test to help Hollywood improve representations of Muslims. It's called the Obeidi al-Sultani Test. I created it with Sue Obeidi, who is the uh, director of the Hollywood Bureau at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. And it offers some guidance on how to better diversify representations of Muslims. And your listeners can learn more about me at my website, evelynalsultani.com. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram a little bit, not too much. Uh, and you can find me there at Evelyn Asultani. Thank you so much, Joanne. A pleasure. So that's Evelyn, E-V-E-L-Y-N, Al-Sultani, A-L-S-U-L-T-A-N-Y. That's how you spell your name, alsultani.com. Brilliant. Thank you. So I think we've got that. Well, it's been amazing talking to you, as I've said. And uh, yeah, it's your your stories and what the work you're doing is incredible even if we're only moving that needle a couple of degrees we're still moving that needle it's we're, we're not going backwards we're, we're holding holding that strength so i think really really important um so thank you very much and also a huge thank you to you the listener for, for staying with us to get to the end i really appreciate this um if you're not already please subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the inclusion bites podcast that's b-i-t-e-s Please share this episode. Please share all the episodes. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues to subscribe. Uh, we would love your support. And, of course, I've got a number of other guests lined up over the next few weeks and months. And if you'd like to be a guest, I'd love to have you on the show. All you need to do is drop me an email to joe.lockwood uk. Tell me you'd like to appear. Uh, we can sort that out. Uh, tell me how we can improve if you think we can. So, finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. I look forward to catching up with you next time. Bye.